All right, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have returning guest, very special guest, Hans Uter. Last name is spelled U-T-T-E-R. And this will be our sixth uh, episode in the series of MK Ultra for the masses. Music is the weapon. So they're very been very well received. I have a lot of listeners and a lot of uh, people who followed these. And you can see the video, the visuals now on YouTube, on YouTube channel, if you'd like to, uh, you can check that out. And he's kind of preoccupied. But if you have a chance, you can, I am now a person who uh, sells Liquid IV. So I've used Liquid IV. It's a hydration multiplier. It's a brand. And I really like their product. I actually use it almost every day. I have their energy version. And you can get 20% off and free shipping for Liquid IV Fueling Life's Adventures. If you use William Ramsey Investigates or WRI, you just use the uh, acronym WRI. Type that into the website, which I will include in the show notes for Liquid IV. But one of the be best things about Liquid IV is it hydrates. You can carry it in a pack. And you also they also have different brands. They have an energy brand. Um, they've sold over 40 million uh, uh, they've donated over $40 million to uh, organizations around the world. And they have 12 different flavors. They've got vitamins, three times the electrolytes of other sports drinks. And it's non-GMO. And it doesn't have a lot of sugar, which is nice. It's not too sweet. It tastes good. So that's liquid IV. And it's good for hot temperatures if you had like a pretty heavy drinking weekend or dancing or things like that. You always want to stay properly hydrated. So I actually really do believe in this product, and I'm happy to promote it. And actually use their energy uh, their energy drink as well, which is really nice. It doesn't have jitters or anything like that. It gives you kind of a clean kind of green tea type of energy. So I definitely support this product, Liquid IV, Fueling Life's Adventures. Check out. I'll put a link to the websites in the show notes. But again, it's Hans Uter. This will be episode six, and we kind of finished off the last one uh, last month talking about incredible numerology associated with a lot of these events in 1960s, Altamont and Crowley summoning, and just weird things that happened in the 60s. But uh, Hans Uter, welcome back to the show. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just want to say one thing about Crowley. Um, and by the way, my website is under construction, so I've got a lot of this material I'm going to start putting together. In book form, I have uh, I had some academic writing that I finished up, but I'm going to just go ahead into the, the truth realm without fear for losing my credentialed status in sect certain sectors. Uh, but, you know, people are aware of this, you know, this, uh, you know, even the Grateful Dead, which we'll get into is, is sort of, you know, it, it gets an iconic status, right? Kind of, it's promoted Crowley the same thing because, um, you know, with Crowley, in a certain way, he was pretty obscure. I mean, he did not have many success success stories in any of his practices. And most of his adepts, it's not like they, you know, okay, Kenneth Anger, who was like, you know, came in at, you know, you know, as his successor or whatever. But I mean, Crowley was promoted in the media, promoted by all these rock bands, promoted by the Beatles, promoted. Um, so he was kind of brought out of, you know, 
you know, he died, a, you know, a, a, a hopeless junkie, right? I mean, it's he destroyed many, many people's lives and seems like he destroyed his own lives and like half of his summonings, he could never close the porthole again, you know? It's like, you know, like, and then like Jimmy Page, oh, let's move into, uh, let's move into this uh, house, you know? Bulliskin like, Manor, yeah, Bulliskin. Yeah, let's move into this house, you know, near Loch Ness that still has this, active very powerful demonic presence that was never put back why would you why would you want to do that i mean you know maybe in a country called retard land that would make sense but at least for me personally unless you think you could control some of these entities right but crowley was you know in a certain way you know they could have also chosen someone else but but he also had that intelligence agency connection right so going back to john d um and so you can't really you can separate them out, but they come together, right, in, in various ways. Um, as we'll look in further with a lot of these esoteric research projects conducted at the Stanford Research Institute, which is right where the Grateful Dead was born. And that's where, you know, Ken Kesey and Robert Hunter were part of these 1959 tests. Um, and, and everything kind of came out of, um, you know, Palo Alto. It was all out of that place, but they're doing experiments and you know mind reading psychic stuff you got yuri geller there's all kinds of occult stuff the circle of nine tied with him you've got dream telepathy you know remote viewing but remote viewing had many many aspects so it wasn't only the drug research but it was parapsychology and occultism for sure that took place at the sri um and, and it's and, a stone's throw from where kesey worked at the uh, veterans hospital it's literally right down the same street. That street yeah. ends up at SRI, which is really, for people who don't know, it's not like a building. It's almost like a little small uh, liberal arts campus. It's like a small college. It's huge. It's decently sized. It's uh, very well funded. Yeah, so, so it's just really, uh, you know, an interesting story. And I've got, I've got about 40 pages of handwritten notes of other stuff. I'm not even going to look at that. We'll just go through what I have because there's so many other... I mean, I look at it, it's like an investigation, you know, like your show title. So you just keep bringing up all of these connections and, and just the the whole development um, in concert with many, many other things, right? So you can't really, the 1960s would not have happened if it wasn't for the Beatles, really. You know, the 60s rock, because rock was basically, rock was dead, right? The Beatles brought rock back. Um, you know, it was kind of the era after the, you know, the, all the first generation rock and rollers died or, you know, were in jail or, you know, whatever, or serving in the military. Um, they had like very, you know, easy listening, you know, super cheesy. And they had all these like, you know, teen novelty records, you know, so it wasn't, yeah, also you had doo-wop and stuff, but, you know, it suddenly rock, but that's tied with the JFK assassination as I have here, um, and then LSD and Crowley are also tied directly with the Beatles as well. But but we're not, you know, we're focusing mostly on the West Coast. So let's go ahead and dive in. Next slide. Let's do it. Let's do it. Jerry Garcia. Swain's music. Swain's music is where he used to play when he was 18. Yeah, crazy. On yeah. University Avenue in Palo Alto. Yeah. yeah. So Jerry, and the thing was, see, you know, there there's a common practice right called sheep dipping or like if someone is in military they're going to go into intel they usually have this sort of egregious dishonorable discharge right so jerry had 
top secret security clearance to work in missile silos. Um, you know, and so, um, you know, it, it is possible, you know, basically him just being a, uh, a screw off and, you know, doing stupid things, you know, uh, you know, uh, well, uh, he actually did that, but doesn't mean he still could have been recruited. Like this guy's a wild card. Well, let's recruit him. But, but, you know, you don't go from, you know, top secret clearance to suddenly why of all places in the country to move is Palo Alto. He chose, just chose there and immediately, um, and just an interesting factoid is that, um, you know, so the Warlocks, you know why they had to change their name? No. There was another band called the Warlocks in New York City. You know what oh. that band's name changed to? No. The, the Velvet Underground. Oh, wow. Velvet Underground. Very, very important group, right? Culturally. I mean, that whole scene with Warhol um, and everything else um, associated. So, yeah, so... And then, of course, Jerry's story about, oh, I opened up the Oxford English Dictionary and I saw the Grateful Dead on one page, right? So people have researched every single dictionary available at that time. There was no, you know, there was no dictionary that had the Grateful Dead in full, you know. But um, anyway, so let's just go on. We'll leave uh, Jerry, Jerry there. So, so this is an interesting story. Um, 60s rock star on FBI payroll. So, so this is talking about Jerry Garcia working Jerome Garcia, guitarist and lead singer for the Grateful Dead, a rock band with a large and little following among the hippie and drug counterculture of the 1960s and 70s, was employed by the FBI from 1968 to 1975 as part of the federal agency's COINTELPRO program. COINTELPRO was designed to infiltrate and gather intelligence on violent and revolutionary groups inside the United States. So this is um, from the New York Times, right? So, and this is an article saying that, and this is the church commissions, right? So, so this is saying that they worked for, and we can go through all this whole article. It's a bit hard to read, but um, you know, it's, you can see it there if you want to chime in on that bit. No, it's incredible. Like you would never think that guy was a, a COINTELPRO asset. Counterintelligence program, that's what it's short for, right? That's incredible. Yeah. And so like the doc, doc yeah, the documents. Is, uh, yeah. Do you want to read it? it? Go ahead. Oh, yeah, go ahead. If you can read that, the documents the, were, were a subject of a, you read about that, 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 you know, that's the second paragraph. The documents you, which were the subject of a five-year lawsuit by a group of Grateful Dead fans called Deadheads for Freedom of Information in the American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, were withheld by the FBI's classified material for reasons of national security. Federal judge ordered the documents released in July of 1990, and they were finally declassified and made public in October of this year. It is unknown how much money was involved or whether Mr. Gar Garcia remains employed by the FBI since large portions of many documents were deleted, and the release of others is still an issue of legal contention. FBI spokesman Dick Held said that the COINTELPRO program was discontinued in 1975 and that Mr. Garcia is no longer worked for the agency as his situation was unique to the 60s. Wow. One of the original plaintiffs in the law, 1985 lawsuit was Brent Midland, the keyboardist of the Grateful Dead who died of a drug overdose in August of 1990. According to Nancy Morehouse of Deadheads for Freedom for Information, the lawsuit was prompted by rumors of the band's fan mailing list being sent to the DEA 
for surveillance of drug dealers and users and fan mail being opened and forwarded to the FBI. Wow. And we'll see about Operation Deadhead, which is also, there literally was an Operation Deadhead, and this goes into the 80s and 90s. People were accusing Jerry of being an informant. But go ahead, continue wow. reading. Yeah, who would know? Like, I'm going to follow this deadhead band. They're sending all their fan information to the freaking government. Like, that is incredible. And they but, have the op Operation Deadhead. It's not even like, you know, it's, it's not even like one step away, right? There's right. like. Oh, no, it's incredible. Grateful Dead concerts are notorious for illegal drug use among fans, specifically hallucinogenics, such as LSD, psilocybin, mushrooms, and MDA. Morehouse said that. First, I couldn't believe that Jerry would be involved in something like this. I mean, it's not like he needs the money. At $30 per ticket, he makes millions off his concerts every year. And as a deadhead, I thought it, that the band really believed in the peace and love that they sing about on stage. Now I feel angry and betrayed. Grateful Dead fans interviewed in recent concert in Eugene, Oregon, expressed similar feelings of disbelief, shock, and anger. Morehouse said that the... Mr. Midland was the only one of the band who really seemed interested in finding out about these if these rumors were true and speculated that Mr. Garcia's rumored involvement with heroin may have landed him in trouble with the federal law enforcement agencies who then pressured him to work as part of Cointel Pro to avoid prosecution. Mr. Held said that he was not at liberty to discuss the FBI's recruitment policies or to speculate upon Mr. Garcia's drug use. Mr. Garcia was unavailable for, unavailable for comment, but a band spokesperson asked about the release documents and said, no way, man. Like, that's a lie. Ah, yeah, that, that's a great legal defense. Um, but that's, I mean, this is only, the, to me, that's the tip of the iceberg, but it shows there is an iceberg, right? Okay. So there's many other aspects of this. Um, and, but and, other know, bands today are, are giving their fan... Uh, fan mailing lists or information to the feds. That's actually a shocker. Well, you know, and, and I, I want to, this I'll say, because um, I have not followed this up. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of going back into the the research, fearless research without any, you know, what the heck, who cares, right? They're all going to, you know, we're all good now because we've woken up in America, hopefully. But anyways, uh, you know, part of this is that, you know, I have gotten some pushback in the past, you know, which I, I didn't mean to because I don't consider myself controversial in particular. I just relate facts. But I, I had several people. I've had people contact me and different things. And one of the things is about the Grateful Dead being involved in human trafficking and sex slavery and and lyrics within songs referring directly to this. I don't. I don't have, you know, that's that's an allegation that I, I I wouldn't make that allegation, right? But that's, you know, there's other layers of this, you know, who knows? But some people have said this is this is a fake story. It looks pretty legitimate to me, and there's enough there that you could confirm, right? That this is not, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense, um, especially when we see the Operation Deadhead, you know, that was going on, you know, and that continued after 1975, you know, and it's like. And there was another lawsuit against Jerry from fans because of Operation Deadhead. Interesting. Li life in prison, man. There were people getting life in prisons. So depending, know. you know. But let, let, let's say uh, yeah, we can move on from there. Long Strange Trip Inside the History of the Grateful Dead by Dennis McNally. Okay. So one of the consequences of American Beauty was the return of Alan Trist 
Garcia's Garcia and Hunter's buddy from Palo Alto. So Alan Twist is very important, right? When he left California, he attended Cambridge, eventually marrying Robert Hunter's friend from the same Palo Alto circle, Christy Bourne. Throughout the 60s, Christy maintained a close friendship with both men, which kept the connection alive. After the Hollywood Festival show in 1970, Alan had gotten together with Hunter and McIntyre, and eventually off John had offered him the job of running Ice Nine, the Dead's music publishing firm. And by the way, that's a that's a William S. Burroughs reference, right? Ice Nine. Uh, so Alan faced an interesting quandary. He was then working with the Tavistock Institute, which studied social change and now had the opportunity to live it. So. Right now, we have a tie directly from the initial Stanford LSD experiments to Jerry Garcia, Robert Hunter, the Grateful Dead, and the Tavistock Institute. Um, and I'll say this, like some of these, the stuff I pulled up before, there's a lot of stuff that is now removed from internet, right? Even I've seen wow. references, you know, Wikipedia and certain articles, you know, disappear. But anyway, so I don't trust you. Go ahead. Well, I'm just trying to pull up his picture right here. There's Trist, and then it conferred, helped, helped establish Ice Nine Publishing Company, 1970. He's a editor in Eugene, Oregon. But, but uh, here's here's the thing. You have these whitewashed bios, right? And that's what I noticed quite a bit. So that's why this quote is important, because the fact that he was working for Talk Institute, he attended Cambridge, right? He wasn't just... You look at that image, you think he's just, you know, a guy, you know, smoking a lot of weed and making psychedelic pictures in his bedroom, right? But the guy went to Cambridge and worked for the Tavistock Institute, and they don't let anybody off the street to work at the Tavistock Institute, right? No way. No way. Incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. Is he still around? Um, I I don't... He may well be. I I don't know. Some of these guys are, you know, um, disappearing. Um... But what's interesting is that they're, they're, you know, you see across the board, right? Many of these very pivotal figures have, they ha- also have a professional life, usually connected with some kind of, you know, institutional research, even military, even, you know, intelligence or, or even some, you know, some type of, you know, like, you know, Tavistock, you know, these or Esalon or whatever. But that is, that is bifurcated, right? So you get a totally bifurcated bio. And, and, and some of these cases, and Alan Trist is one of them, where I couldn't find his full bio. It, it's kind of that scrub clean, um, you know, it just he's just a hippie dude, you know, just likes to party, peace and love, whatever. But you can, but you can play, play some of this, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it is weird. Like, so, so guy's, guy's, yeah. you'll play some of this. This would be good to see some of these images, actually. Jerry, acid test. Can you play the sound? I'm not getting the sound. Yeah, hold on. Let me start over again. I think, I think your audio your audio is muted on the video. Audio is muted on the video. I was just a part. This is from Long Strange Trip. There was a conscious decision in my life to be involved in something that was flowing and dynamic and living something that had a life of its own. I was just a part of it. This is the Holy Grail. This has never been seen. I don't know why. What is it? What 
is it about the Grateful Dead? Grateful Dead. With an narrative of the Grateful Dead was that we're the same as you. You're the same as us. There is no real distinction. The camaraderie and the fellowship in that is so powerful. Yeah, let's have some fun. We were experimenting with psychedelics as much as we were playing music. It's a philosophy. Leaving yourself open to possibility and leaving yourself open to magic. The acid test experience really formed the band as a group mind. As a group mind. In 30 minutes, I could find any drug that I want. Uh oh. Are we being pulled? Sound. That's the link between them and the audience. We built the wall of sound with our own two hands. It's like the voice of God. If you were in the audience, you were included in the experience. You should have known that something was coming when there were more people outside the show than there were inside. There was a strong belief that it'd be leaderless. <laughs> Who was in charge? Well, I'm so glad you asked that. There were times when I was in charge. Times when Jerry was in charge. Your truck, that had a blown carburetor. That carburetor was the boss. It was total chaos. Spinners would be out in the hall. And they'd be bowing they thought Garcia was a cop. Jerry Garcia did not bargain to be the mayor of a traveling countercultural town. It was a machine by then. You know how many people are depending on this show going down the road? Where's the freedom in that? It's not up to us to define the Grateful Dead. It's this living, breathing thing. And that's one of the parts of this magic. Not defining it is that it becomes everything. Okay, well, yeah, but so that's that was, uh, executive produced by Scorsese. Interesting. Mm, yeah. So, so again, so there's a mythology that you know this is getting us. You know, these things have you long know, things have lifetimes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, well, let's go back to the the, the, the slides here. And uh, okay, well, let me get my AirPods to work. I can't figure this out. Yeah, let's go back to the slides. Let's see. There you go. Okay, so again, we have, you know, Tavistock Institute, working with the Tavistock Institute, had the opportunity to live social change or perhaps to direct it, right? So how what's more interesting than, you know, you're coming up with these theories of social change? Well, let's try to actually implement them, right? Um uh, so let's go ahead and go to the next slide and I'll, I'll start playing some clips in their own words. Uh, you can go ahead and read it if you like. It says, what united the original Provincetown Bohemians, playwrights and painters both was the, the idea that art was the great universal refreshment. Curiously for such dissimilar folk, this is what united the founders of the Grateful Dead. What we were interested in was art, recalls Alan Trist, who was 19 when he was when he was his father, Eric Trist, a visiting fellow at Stanford, he founded the Tavistock Institute in London, arrived his, in Palo Alto in 1960. His father founded Tavistock, man. That's, that's, not, that, that's, that's not just like some dude, you know, living in their parents' basement, smoking weed and painting, right? That's, that's right. a... Okay, go ahead. Okay, let's go back. It was the business of being an artist that totally captured Jerry and Hunter, he states. 
pointing out to me when we meet at the bagel shop near the dead's office in San Rafael. Well, so these guys all met up at the same time um, or that, you know, 59, you know, 60 Jerry's showing up there in Palo Alto, right? They're all kind of arriving. Um, and in fact, the uh, uh, Ken Babs and Ken Kesey, right? They were both Wilson fellows and they were both in the military. So they were both on the Wilson fellowship. They met as Wilson fellows in the, in the mid fifties, right? And Ken Babs, uh, many people say was the, 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 the central person that was really running a lot of the high tech stuff of the Mary Pranksters, right? Cause they had these crazy, you know, we, I, we played some of their, their, some of the recordings, I mean, from the acid test, I mean, they'd have a hundred different speakers in different places with weird lights. And I mean, it was intense, but let's, um, I, I want to start playing some of the, you know, actual recordings of these guys in the dead revealing or talking about stuff um, okay. as we go deeper. So, um, so should we, everyone knows about Owsley Stanley the third, or do you want to say something about him or we could just play the clip? I thought Owsley Stanley was the LSD guy, right? Isn't he the, one of the proponents of bringing a lot of LSD in then? Well, okay. So Owsley Stanley was the sound guy for the Grateful Dead. He was uh, in the Air Force, you know, doing advanced radio telemetry, uh, advanced technology, um, you know, especially with signal frequency transfer stuff. But he became one of the most notorious LSD chemists, as well as creating the Grateful Dead's entire sound system. So, wow. so this crazy wall of sound stuff, he designed that. He was building that as well as distributing LSD and becoming one of the, the largest manufacturers of LSD. But so let's listen to LSD talking about the occultic, occult background of the Grateful Dead and how they're using LSD. So this is Owsley Stanley speaking, I think it's in the mid-70s. So here we are. Here's the recording. I'm going to play this. Well, if you can't describe what you were doing with acid before, can you describe what was different about what the Casey outfit was doing with it? Well, it was magic. It took you into a place that was like the descriptions in the uh, in the books by uh, the Rosicrucians and uh, and the Freemasons, and it made sense of all the different. Uh, occult things that i read it was it was just notice his references occult things he said rosicrucians and freemasons right so yep, and just yep. real quick owsley stanley is from a very very wealthy owsley stanley the third is from a very wealthy elite kentucky family and was yes, also grand, you know grandfather was in the senate yep yep so he wasn't he's also just like alan trist whose dad happened to found the Tavistock Institute, he was he wasn't just, you know, making coffee. And Trist was very central. Okay, here we go. Let's keep listening to this. Oops, sorry. It was a a pathway to another place and it seemed to um, it seemed to give you access to mental powers that were uh, written about and talked about, both amongst the Hindus and amongst the ancient uh, uh, alchemists and magicians and uh, direct seem to go direct give you the access to those things it's like a tool like a tool to work on the consciousness um, although the material always gave me great visions incredible visions I'm sure that it's the root source of 
the art that I do, even today. I'm sure it was the root source of my ability to manipulate sound, which I looked at as an art form. I never looked at myself as an engineer mm -hmm. anymore, and I looked at myself as a, as a chemist or anything else. Not a scientist. I have a scientific background, but because I'm interested in everything. Mm -hmm. And science is a, just a way of describing the physical universe. And uh, alchemy and the occult is just a way of describing the non-physical universe. And I was interested in both aspects. And art is a way of creating something uh, yourself as a man, which can say something about either the physical the non-physical or both. Ah, uh, yeah. I was going to say that, that somewhere along the line there's a bridge between the two oh, who are yeah. comparing and contrasting those things. Um, well, I like, the, I like spatiality. One of the earliest things that happened to me with regards to psychedelics was that the... Okay, so... Oops. So, right here, I mean, so he is um, referring to you know, very, as we go further into this, he talks about experiments creating group minds, creating telekinesis, creating all these things. Just at the time, the Stanford Research was Stanford Research Institute was conducting multiple programs in these areas, right? Including, though, he says, Dory between this world and the next. He uses specific terms. He doesn't say spirituality. He says occult and alchemy. Okay, right. and he right. says opening the barriers between worlds, right? So there's, so that's, um, that's, you know, Owsley, I'll just play them. Um, did you want to um, just uh, say anything about that? It's fascinating. I've never heard that. That's really interesting information that they had all of that uh, terminology down, you know, that they're putting it on there. You can see that kind of uh, alternate occult outlook, I think is pretty telling. Well, yeah, and it's very specific, right? They're not, he's very specific, right? And this guy, you know, again, was, you know, an advanced chemist, you know, and actually the weird thing is another like shadowy figure, Melissa Cargill, same as the Cargill company. Wow. That was his, his girlfriend who actually taught him how to make LSD supposedly. And she has um, totally invisible, right? I mean, you can't find almost nothing about her. Um, and again, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of this stuff even these bios scrubbed so they, they bifurcate them so you've got your you know your happy hippie background okay let's do another quote on this um so this is another quote and i, I another clip i, I this is either owsley or jerry i'll tell when i listen to it so this is jerry garcia okay I can't hear that. If you're playing something, oh, it's not coming through. Sorry, my bad. I, I, I forgot to turn the speakers on. Let's do it again. Here we go. So this is Jerry talking about, you know, chaos theory and then what happens to sensory perception with psychedelics. But just, okay, listen to this. So here we go. This is Cargill, Cargill right there. No, 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 no. Uh, Melissa Cargill was uh, Owsley's roommate. Right. Uh, it, but, but, I'm just oh, showing oh, a oh, picture oh, sure. of her. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, if you can find more information on her, man, because she's kind of trying to. It's been scrubbed. Yeah. So here, so here's Jerry talking about uh, virtual reality and magic with a K. Along there, there's you get some kind. You get you. We're starting to bump into chaos now, as the lines between hearing and touch are blurred. 
you know, now you're starting to get into this, this kind of chaos. And there, I remember uh, in some, some kind of part of that uh, automatic writing kind of psychic literature stuff about uh, Lemuria and ancient Egypt, that you bump into occasionally, there was something in there about the, the fall of the early magical, magically oriented societies <laughs> pre-Atlantean uh, was that they, something about that they had control over form and that there were just, there was just too, too great a, a variety of forms. And, you know, people were becoming anything they wanted to, any animal, anything like that. And that part of the process of, uh, of part of the reaction to it was the desire to restrict the forms to a few, the forms that we are familiar with now. This, this stuff is all stuff that bubbles out of the subconscious of people. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know. It, it doesn't have any relation to real history, historicity, but it's part of the mythos, you know. There's a metaphor in there somewhere about that thing of losing the losing some sense of what the bounds of reality are. You know what the thing, what your experience is. It, I think it's the real, it's the basic threat of drugs, psychedelics specifically, is somewhere tied into that. And that this virtual reality stuff is the most is the technological equivalent, really, of psychedelics. So this is very important. Again, this is from the early '90s. There's a background noise. There, you know, they're doing like he's backstage. He's talking about virtual reality and psychedelics. Now, what virtual reality you had in back 1990? Nothing. But but listen to this. Very important. So yeah, continue. And I, I I can see that I can I think that part of it is going to be the thing of being able to make this look like something else. You know, just to avoid that kind of interference. Did you read Barlow's thing about, uh, he's just been handing it out, do you know John? Yes, yeah. yes, it's so much better. Yeah, did you read his thing about these people who are getting busted, the hackers that are getting busted? for? Yeah, I'm, I'm involved with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, yeah. which oh. is what they decided to call it. Which is a, that's right. Oh, you know all about it. Well, that's, yeah. well, you know, that's not even, I mean, here we're not. So anyways, so that's, uh, so in that case, you know, he's talking about virtual reality. And he goes on and on to really push it, which I'll tie into the whole 6G, um, you know, a little bit towards the end here. But uh, basically, I mean, he's talking about, you know, so you're you're shifting. He brings up that thing, you know, about Atlantis, um, but also this they had basically blurring lines between physical reality and and actual reality um and then saying virtual reality is like lsd and it's going to become the new lsd and this is why the man wants to bust you the man wants to bust virtual reality you know what i mean that's he's putting that thing oh the man wants to stop people from you know from experiencing virtual reality because that's a freedom and the man hates freedom right so that's anyways but he you know definitely equates virtual reality which is really you know what the world we're being almost shunted into right you know the, the you know the world economic forum is 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 straight is straight straight up there so um yeah it's uh, there you go we can go to the next slide if you'd like all right let's do it okay all right so there's the wilson fellows yeah so they participated in srs lsd experiments i didn't know that. in 1959 right wow. so that's where ken kesey and that's where he wrote one of the cuckoo's nest but also Ken Babs, who, you know, he was the guy running the complex right light and sound 
machines for these crazy acid tests, which seemed really unpleasant. You know what I mean? Like if I'm on acid, you don't want to be around a bunch of these freaks, but they, you know, stuff could actually permanently psych psychotically damage people. But anyways, uh, and then Robert Hunter, the lyricist of the Grateful Dead was right there too. And that's where he got inspired to become a writer was being part of the same, the same LSD experiments. Um, Owsley Garcia and, and, and many others, including I believe Kesey, and um, Ken Babs also were military, ex-military. And, and just to, um, uh, and there's a whole bunch of other connections, but we see the Palo Alto, we see around the same date, and we see all these major players coming together. And as Stanford Research Institute agenda, research uh, agenda uh, develops, so these actual things, which we'll hear quotes of how they're experimenting with this on their fans, right? They're using their fans, you know, um, okay, anyways, and this is a quote um, about Operation Deadhead, um, quote, and I'm sorry, I don't have the source there, but it's just a source related to that. Um, I was contacted by someone who was on a petition drive to get someone out of jail who was a victim of Operation Deadhead and still in jail over 20 years later, like a life sentence. I wasn't aware of the Deadhead operation, which is still ongoing. I'm not sympathetic to drug dealers and would normally get involved in this. It's a typo. I would not normally get involved in this type of effort. But there's one aspect of this that I'm interested in from a legal standpoint. What was the dead's involvement? It was long rumored that Garcia was an informant. Okay. And so there were several suits. And you have people literally spending their lives in jail. Right. Um, you know, and uh, so this is... Um, you know, I would say that even the legal aspect of getting people busted for drugs compared to the social engineering aspect and the occultic aspects and potentially other things, this is, I guess, is a tip of an iceberg, but it, I think it gives some evidentiary platform for the little more far out um, things. So. Right. I agree. What define Operation Deadhead? I can't find anything about it online. Um, I think it was actually Operation... Um, it was Operation Dead End and Operation Dead. It was basically it was a it was a, a major uh, tra FBI tra uh, trafficking um, thing, and I think it was connected. It was sort of semi classified, but it was primarily related to, you know, I mean, well, the Dead were the largest. I mean, they were the the, the international psychedelic distribution network, right? I mean, right, they, right, right. you know, and when they they stop playing, I mean, there's a massive drop off in psychedelics, and then it goes right up. But many other drugs, I mean, it was a huge network of of, of, of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people involved in that. So, um, yeah, it's, there's a couple different names for it. Um, this, uh, now in this case, I, I won't, you know, I, I would need to do more research. I, I, I remember seeing stuff on this before online. When I looked this time, I couldn't find, I could find next to nothing. So there's a lot that is being actually scrubbed, um, you know, from your search engines. Um, um, you know, I said, even the bios, I mean, that's yeah. why, uh, but, uh, we can, we can move, move on okay, from there. The next one. Okay. Well, let's go back and then let, let's just listen to this or you can leave it there. The neural network. So let's listen to some more quotes from the dead. This is what I think is very interesting. So we'll get deeper. And these are all interviews, you know. Um, so listen to this. This is pretty fascinating. This is about the Merry Pranksters. This is with Owsley talking about, uh, Ken Kesey may be on in the interview too, but talking about what the Merry Pranksters were doing. So here we go. It was like, they did specific things. 
they did specific things. They made specific sounds. They did specific stuff. Loop tape machines together and do delays and get um, reverberation, which re the sound reinforcing itself. And there's a, a certain persistence, like when you're really high, you move your hand, you get a smear. Well, there's also other kinds of persistence. And they reinforced all these things. How they, how they came upon them, it, it seemed as though they had rediscovered something from uh, ancient ways and ancient times. A lot of the music that's used in shamanic rituals does the same thing, which we discovered later. But this was totally came up in isolation. None of these people in the Gizi scene had any roots in the shamanistic rituals at all. That was the other group of people that I'd run into every so often that were more into those things. You know, the, the Millbrook guys and the rest of those guys. That, mm -hmm. And, the, you know, Jadiger. All those guys, they were more into that, they, whether they actually got into the rituals or not, because I just had some contacts with them, you know, take a few trips with them and that sort of thing, but not, didn't follow that line, didn't go down, never went to a, a, an Indian peyote meeting, although I always had a desire to do so, and I never went to a, to a uh, uh, curandero in Mexico with the mushroom. Well, I'll stop it there. So he, he says very specific tape loops, delays, and rituals. And so, but, but very specific. I mean, they were doing, you know, this is scientific research. This is not random, right? This is not, they're inducing all these types of states, very complex mechanisms, right? So he, but he also said they're conducting rituals. They're using occult type of rituals along with scientifically devised, um, you know, types of, uh, you know, uh, modification of consciousness. Um, you know, you know. So there's all kinds of, you know. And so, he, he, but he's he says that there. Of course, you know, you have to we have to go a little bit deeper to find out some of those specifics. But um, I don't know if you want to um, say anything about that. No, it's just interesting. I mean, you just see how knowledgeable they are. That's what I'm impressed by. Yeah, but go ahead. Continue. Well, not even knowledgeable, but they were they were conducting these experiments. They were, you know, you know, Osley was, you know, devising the sound system. I mean, he wasn't. But it was. Let's just continue a little bit more with that same quote. I've never actually seen it, but from the best that I can figure out, all those rituals contained a lot of the elements which the pranksters discovered. Or rediscovered, or well, invented, or something. Probably not that much of a surprise, though. I mean, I mean, there, there's. I certainly have the belief that a lot of that stuff is in here. It's well, in it, must be. it must. Be. A lot it must of, be. a lot of, you know, the reason a lot of this stuff is, is we get that recognition from it is that. So. Uh, so anyway, so basically there, no, no, I mean, so we have an admission that the pranksters were conducting specific occult rituals, right? Using the template of occult rituals, as well as doing psycho, you know, psychobiological experimentation with very specific ratios of light and sound delays, all kinds of specific tonal frequencies. It wasn't just, you know, random dudes playing around with dials and knobs, right? Um, and uh, so let me just, I've got a Word document. I guess it didn't show up in the PowerPoint. And I have some some stuff about the SRI. Um, and I'll just, I'll, I can just share that, read from that. Um, do you want to, uh, you want to chime in? Uh, anything? No, in please that? continue. Go ahead. Okay. So, okay. Share screen. Select window or screen. And let's see. Uh, where's Microsoft Word? Okay. Ah, do entire screen. Let's see what happens here. 
allow and i'll just do this full screen um, can you see the document yep sure can. okay so these are just cut and paste stuff but this is pretty interesting um so if you want to read some of this go ahead because i've been talking a lot so let me see let's see what i can find here the remote viewing team at sri was in fact engaged in projecting words and images directly to the cranium it is not a humanitarian pastime the project was military and test subjects were often subjected to a lifetime of electromagnetic torture applied with the same thorough disregard for human rights as the radiation tests conducted at the height of the Cold War to be sure the treatment subjects have received at the hands of their own government. EM mind control machines were championed at SRI by Dr. Carl Prebram, director of the Neuropsychology Research Laboratory. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I certainly could educate a child by putting in an electrode in the lateral hypothalamus and then selecting the situations at which I stimulated. In this, I was I can grossly change his behavior. Psychology Today touted Prebram as the Magellan of brain science. Wow. Magellan yeah. or Mengele. Yeah, <laughs> yeah really. He obtained his BS and MD degrees at the University of Chicago and at SRI studied how the brain processes and stores sensory, sensory imagery. He is credited with the discovering that mental imaging bears a close resemblance to hologram projection, the basic basis for transmitting images to the brains. The SRI SAIC psi experiments were supervised at Langley by John McMahon, second in command under William Casey, succeeding Bobby Ray Inman, the SAIC director. McMahon has, according to Philip Agee, the CIA whistleblowing exile, an affinity for technological exotics for CIA covert actions. He's a former director of the Technical Services Division, Deputy Director for Operations, and in 1982, McMahon was appointed Deputy Director of Central Intelligence. He left the agency six years later to take the position of President of the Lockheed Missiles and Space Systems Group. In 1994, he moved on to Draper Laboratories. He's a director of the Defense Enterprise Fund and an advisor to congressional committees. Many, many of the SRI empaths were mustered from L. Ron Hubbard's Church of Scientology. Oh, oh. Harold Putoff, the Institute's senior, senior researcher, is a leading Scientologist. Two remote viewers from SRI have also held the rank in the church. Ingo Swan, Class 7 operating Phaeton, and the late Pat Price. Putoff and Targ's lab assistant was a Scientologist married to a minister of the church. When Swan joined SRI, he stated openly that 14 clears participated in the experiments more than I would suspect. At the time, he denied CIA involvement, but now acknowledges it was rather common knowledge all along who the sponsor was. Although in documents, the identity of the agency was concealed behind the sobriquet of an East Coast scientist. The agency's interest was quite extensive. A number of agents of the CIA came themselves ultimately to SRI as subjects in remote viewing experiments, as did some members of Congress. Wow. Oh, yeah. no. It goes on to Jolien West. Keep oh going. yeah, yeah. Bring it okay, back. You, oh, okay. I wanted to play some quotes. That okay, was my, my that's my big. Julian West. That's yeah. That, that, that's my big. Uh, okay. You know the, the money. That's your uh, aha. Well, it's all okay. kind of aha. Okay. It, 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 but it keeps uh, really interesting. And, and guess where, um, Mr. Owsley, who you know was again making the LSD for the Mary Pranksters, making LSD for the Grateful Dead, designing the sound system. He guess where he also worked? JPL Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Get out. Yes. Oh, yep. Owsley did? Yeah. He worked wow. at JPL. Wow. And then, yeah, and, you know, we all know the other 
people there. Uh, so let's, uh, yeah, we'll just continue on. This is a little bit more of um, from some stuff about those who were there at the time and, and, you know, talking about this, but also sort of revealing a lot in their own words. So here we go. Um, we'll finish this about the prankster ritual. Some of it emanates from our own neurology and DNA. You read this one, haven't you? Read this no, one. I have it's really, another book. It's really interesting. Intoxication. It's called Intoxication. Ronald Siegel. He's done. Uh, research on the craving for altered states. Oh, that's the fourth drive theory? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been hearing about that. Yeah. Well, it, it, it seems obvious. In fact, the examination... Uh, when you recover from all this, I guess if you're tough, and I guess most of us were, Occasionally, some people weren't. It's unfortunate, but because of the way in which it was uh, undertaken in those days, and the fact that we used to take huge amounts of acid, we used to take you know, 250, 300 mics or more. Kizzy preferred 400 or more. And uh, Albert Hoffman told me that that was a substantial overdose. I said, yes, in retrospect, we realized it was. But what do you consider an optimum? Oh, I don't know. He, behavior of thought and mentation has electronic nature. So, okay, it's not just about your doses. Um, and, and a lot of times with a lot of these like drug cowboy heroes, you find they were not really taking as much as it says they took, right? Like a number, I think it was like, uh, it was a Phil Lash and even Bob Weir. Like they, they didn't really, they stopped taking LSD uh, if they even even took it that much, right? And, and, and just to... Um, you know, we go to, you know, Hank Harrison, of course, who was the Grateful Dead's, the manager of of the, the Warlocks, right, when they started in Palo Alto with all these just all met up, you know, and, uh, you know, all with these unique backgrounds right there. Um, and there was an actually an earlier um, sort of the first psychedelic convent or, you know, rock scene actually took place in the desert of Las Vegas, New Virginia, Nevada. Um, and, but that was more like a wild west, um, you know, uh, I won't just get into that. That's kind of interesting. That was like the rollout before the 60, it was about 63, even before the Merry Pranksters. But it was, um, anyways, that's, uh, there was a, the, one of the bands, the bands would have residencies there, but they were shooting guns. They were, you know, you know cowboy dressed like cowboys. You know, you've got the other, okay. Anyways, that get back to that um so this is again talking about the electroneurochemical model of the mind and this is what they're manipulating so you have this idea we've we've heard about the rituals right even from jerry they're talking about specific occult aspects being involved very specific now this is the thing of uh uh thought as electricity check this out and okay behavior of thought and mentation has electronic nature to it the flow of electrons hmm. and in fact one of the things very interesting things this is very interesting too as a little side uh, about how psychedelics affect you and how you interact with not only consciousness but we found that some of the psychedelics seem to affect our way our, our ability to interact with uh, inanimate equipment really? specifically when someone at a, at a show or when in a room where someone was playing music was to uh, take some DMT, which is a rather, a rather powerful psychedelic. The music would immediately become louder and more strident. And really? The yeah. other people would notice that? Absolutely. Everybody. Oh, everybody. It just does it, it does a thing. It, and it has a certain tonality to it, a certain quality to it. 
which is very distinctive. So we decided that we decided we none of us could we generally we'd all do it, right? We thought, oh well, that's just one of those things. But then I got on that back to that thing that that I'd learned from Melissa is that don't assume. That's Melissa Cargill, right? The mysterious Melissa Cargill. So what they're talking about is telekinesis, right? And, you know, go through. So then they're, of course, doing experiments with telekinesis at SRI. But he's giving examples. And again, you know, but Melissa, Melissa Cargill, this very mysterious lady. So this is, he's talking about Melissa Cargill. But notice that thoughts are electricity. The brain is a computer, right? Virtual reality. Okay, let's listen. Here we go. That this is an illusion caused by the substance. Mm-hmm. Believe it's real. So I said, "Hey, I believe this is real." Well, what we one thing we noticed was that the, the tubes would get red hot and burn out half the time, and it would tear the voice bowls out of the speakers. And yet we couldn't make it do that ordinarily. So you see, it was very funny because uh, the lady that I was with in those days was was quite direct. Now was her name was Melissa. Quite direct. Oh, very direct about everything, right? Uh-huh. So whenever we would get high, that's long before I met the dead, right? But whenever we get high, and things just start getting really weird, she would insist on dealing with them as though they were real. Not a hallucination, not something that the drug was doing, but this is reality, and forced me to deal with it. So I never got into that space that a lot of people get into where they say, oh, it's the drug that's doing this. This is a hallucination. This is a non-real effect which is being produced by a chemical which is in my brain. I had to deal with it as though this was the absolute concrete everyday reality now. Deal with it, right? And that was interesting because that's different. It's different that way. See, Mm -hmm. you, you, you you have a whole different set. Right. It's like the difference between sitting in a. Okay, it goes on and on, but he's saying that, like, you know, take the trips as real. Um, And I've got, you know, you know, there's many, many other things I have, even in terms of developing a collective group mind. Right. But telekinesis, telepathy, all these things were were ongoing. Um, Do you want to let's let's go back to this document here and let's uh, but, but please chime in, William. I don't. I'm just listening along, man. It's really fascinating. I didn't know Oswald Stanley had all of these audio tapes. I'm just totally fascinated by this whole a- aspect that you've taken in this sixth episode. Man. Yeah. So, so here we go, and I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you read this. This is sort of a. This is a. This is a big moment. I expect donations. No, I'm just ah. Okay. Sure. Yeah, I should. Yeah, I should. You should ask for donations somewhere. Yeah, okay. Hey, I'm going to ask for donations before I, um, Hans Utter at hotmail.com. That's my PayPal. There you go. go. So so then I'll actually have a website. Okay. Here we go. So go ahead, William, and let me, uh, let's do this in entire screen. Um, And let's see what you have there. Um, You're not getting it. Let's see. Where's my word? Word. Here we go. Okay. Go, um, go back. Add it back. Okay, there we go. Yep. I'll just do it. Do you want me to keep reading this next one? Yep. Go ahead. If you want to just go over the the, um, the beginning, just read that first. That okay, first, I missed that first, first thing. Yeah, the official yeah. history of SRI remote viewing program suggests that the initial research got underway in 1972 due to a proposal by Hal Putoff. Allegedly, the remote viewing program was an attempt to train psychic spies 
who could view locations at any distance via psychic abilities. Pudoff su suggests that this idea came about due to a meeting with psychic Ingo Swan, who had read some proposal of Putoff about quantum processes in biology. This, like so much involving SRI, is a complete fabrication. In fact, Putoff and Swan were both high-level members of the Church of Scientology, and their remote viewing techniques were based on Scientology procedures. Putoff will be of particular interest since immediately prior to coming to Stanford, Putoff says he was a naval intelligence officer and then a civilian employee of the National Security Agency. The initial research for remote viewing at SRI was sponsored by the CIA via MKUltra. Okay, and then uh, you go ahead. Here's the paragraph. Here. And here it is. The British correspondent learned that on the tour, that medical oversight for the Psy experiments was provided by Dr. Lewis Jolly and West. And by the way, this is BBC documentary, so that's what that's referring to. So, okay, so what, what do you know the name of the BBC documentary? I, I have it in my notes. I don't have it in okay, this one documentary yet. One of the most notorious CIA mind control specialists in the country. Apart from monitoring the health of the subjects, according to SRI spokesman, Dr. West conducted his own experimental studies on the phenomenology of dissociative states or multiple personalities. That's the Institute. Dr. Colin Ross, a specialist in dissociative disorders, offers that Dr. West's work for the CIA centered on the biology or personality of dissociative states. Many victims of the CIA-anchored experimentation have been left with multiple personalities induced at a young age, and it is certain that the CIA can trigger induced multiple personalities electronically from a remote source to commit any act on cue in the ultimate Manchurian candidate. Under West's tutelage at UCLA, parapsychology experiments were of another sort were conducted by Kirlian Aura researcher Thelma Moss, a writer for television and a human guinea pig herself in LSD experiments conducted in 1957. Three years later, as a UCLA psychology student, she designed protocols for her own LSD experiments under the supervision of Dr. Oscar Yaniger. The CIA, of course, cannot be far away. Dr. Yaniger's supplier of the drug was the legendary Captain Al Hubbard, the Johnny Appleseed of LSD. Nothing of substance has been written about Al Hubbard, Janiger once said, and probably nothing ever should. Hubbard, a convicted rum runner and had a knack for electronic communications. He was recruited by the OSS by agents of Allen Dulles and surely reported to the CIA thereafter. Hubbard, an arch-conservative, joined SRI at the urging of Willis Harmon, director of the Institute's Educational Policy Research Center, ostensibly as a security guard. Harmon, an LSD experimenter himself, admits, Al never did anything resembling security work. Hubbard was employed on the Alternative Futures Project, a corporate strategy program. Al had a grandiose, grandiose idea, one co-worker recalls, that if he could give the psychedelic experiments to major executives of the Fortune 500 companies, he could change the whole of society. Hubbard was a major supplier to universities sponsoring experimentation and flooded the youth subculture he despised with LSD in the 1960s. <clears throat> yeah, it's pretty amazing. Like they okay. were doing LSD tests and everything before the 60s. Oh, they're doing it done in the 50s. And, and, and yeah. so even, um, you know, and it does seem like, you know, it, it, so you could look at that. I mean, just as a, I'll stop share. Okay. Like as one of those, like almost a training thing. So even a lot of these researchers or people that were doing it had to go through some exposure to it. Right. Um, 
you know, so like the Red Dog Saloon, and they're actually, that's where the first sort of LSD rock environment was there. Uh, could you play one of the bands? So like Big Brother and the Holding Company started in 63, right? Before there was Haight-Ashbury. Um, but uh, like one of the bands there was the Charlatans. They were considered like one of the first psychedelic bands. So they had these communal group trips. Um, but again, not hippie, but like Wild West. Everyone had guns and stuff, you know. And it was, uh, it, but if you play the, um, if you look up online, just play uh, Codine by the, the Charlatans. So this is one of the bands that was at this Red Dog Saloon place. Um, but the people doing that were also part of these 1957 to 1959 LSD rollouts, even going back as early as 1953. But these people became then running operations, right? They went through a training program, Ken Kesey, test it, and suddenly he's, you know, put all his money into, you know, fund the Merry Pranksters just out of his own largesse because he wants to change the world. So the Charlatans, so they basically came into being, you know, as uh, they were, they had a residency at this Red Dog Saloon. And so during the residency, you basically played music. Everyone took LSD and party, but that's where they, so they were known as the, you know, one of the original psychedelic groups. But you can see they, they still, they're not really, the hippie movement hadn't really been developed. So they're using more of this Wild West thing a bit. But go ahead, go ahead and play the charlatans. Okay, I'm to take this off. Charlatans. Okay, you stop it there, but that's cool. Stop it, William. Let's go. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, actually, that's like you know, a total dead knockoff. Well, that's way before the dead existed, right? So that's, you know, the dead, you know, before they, that was before there was a Grateful Dead. Um, so, but, uh, and what's interesting too, though, if you look at the early set list of the Warlocks, right, they're not, they're playing like, you know, Louie Louie, Wooly Bully, you know, three chord frat rock songs. I mean, they, they were not doing it, you know what I mean? Not much uh, there, but yet they, you know, they were part of these experimentation but you know again the first iteration or a rollout of this was this red dog saloon thing and there's i've got a bunch more stuff on that which i'll talk about later but but um you, you know that that they actually came they had the flying dog or it was a flying dog or you know flying dog review they came there was a trips festival that they set up a a shop in in Haight ashbury and now we also got jolly west linked in here right and we already did we do the Manson thing, but now we're looking at direct correlation of the founders of this whole movement, right? I mean, you know, what I mean, like sort of the the leaders. Um, you know, of course, again, the cover story is you know Ken Kesey just spent the money he made from writing, um, uh, you know, Wonderful or the Cuckoo's Nest. You know, paying for this, uh, paying for these very complicated acid tests with tens of thousands of dollars of you know complicated equipment right you're not this is you know you're not going to the guitar center and buying you know these are like you know research level i've got some of these old like vacuum tube you know they were used for research like neuroscience research stuff you know laboratory grade a lot of these delays and types of machines they were using they weren't you know off the rack you know at your um you know what i mean these were you know, white noise generators and that, but they were using very complex delay sequences, you know, and again, this, this stuff, there wasn't, you know, at the time people weren't really, you know, you know, where everyone thinks now you got your guitar pedal board. It wasn't like that back then. I mean, you know, Hendrix had almost all his pedal guitar pedals custom made for him. Right. So this whole thing developed, it wasn't like this stuff wasn't available. You had like wah pedal or some of them, but even the maybe a fuzz face, but this stuff was not available. Right. I mean, and this was scientific grade. You know what I mean? Um, so Ken Kesey just paid for this, paid for this bus, drove all these, you know, hippies or just out of his royalties. And then, you know, you can read like there's some articles was Ken Kesey using, making the best use, use of his money. So we're talking like, did he even have enough money to fund this whole like commune? Uh, you know, maybe he did, you know, but uh, it's just interesting. But they all tie back even Robert Hunter. Right. And then, you know, especially Owsley. Um, you know, you know, being so important um, to this uh, this thing. Um, so let me just um, I'll just play a few more quotes here uh, as we wind down. But, you know, as you go deeper and deeper into the parapsychology research that was being done and seeing how this is correlating, even the dead, you know, you know he was talking about how they could with their mind power on certain hallucinogens, they were blowing out the, the speaker tubes of their amplifiers. Right. Yeah. So right. here we go. So here's um, Owsley. Um, I have about ten more minutes. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So I'll just let me think. Um, what is the best? Oh, let me just. I'll just do a couple of these. Control of DNA through electricity. That's kind of interesting, right? So well, let's play this here. Okay. I'm scared. How so? Oh, it just seemed frightening. They seem to have. All of that seemed to have a connection to a very, a very scary, and possibly dangerous aspect of reality to me. Somebody told me that you pushed a chair around that building. Yeah, I was chair. a lot of noise. So this is um, Owsley talking about being around, 
you know, the dead or the quasi-warlocks, right, during the time of the acid test, right, and describing all these weird parapsychological phenomena, but he said it was frightening, you know, to be around them. So that's, so that's, that's the context of this. Let me start it over. So. That scared me. How so? Oh, it just seemed frightening. They seemed to have, all of that seemed to have a connection to a very, a very scary and possibly dangerous aspect of reality to me. Somebody told me that you pushed a chair around that building. Yeah, it made a chair. lot of noise. Made that some noise. noise. Uh, everything was making noise. And it was a very noisy place. Well, it seemed like it, yeah. I'd like to hear your side of that story. <laughs> I don't know. I remember the, I remember pushing the, uh, the chair around. And I remember all kinds of different things. I remember all kinds of noises and sounds and things. The pranksters would make these noises, and the noises would seem to get inside your nervous system, and um, as if there was some type of a plug or something in your head. It would get Listen to that. The noises would seem to get inside your nervous system as if there was some type of plug in your head. Wow. Okay. And again, this is this guy's, you know, scientific background, JPL, you know, uh, you know, Air Force. Um, so, you know, so he's using. OK, anyways, so just think about that. OK, we'll continue. Get in there scrape away something in your head. It would get in there scrape away one type of a plug or something in your head. It would get in there scrape away. I can't hear that. Oh, you can hear that? Okay, let me just go back. Okay. All right. Let me try again. Let me your head and begin to scrape away. Chuck uh, Some uh, kind of a... Cat. Are you hearing me? So it would make the... Uh, yeah, I hear it. It would be plugged into something. Uh -huh. uh, the psychic cable. Uh -huh. Scrape away. Uh, some... So that was Hans Uter, last name is spelled U-T-T-E-R, full name H-A-N-S-U-T-T-E-R.com is his website. Uh, we had to kind of cut that short. We had some audio difficulties, so we will follow up or carry on with MK Ultra for the Masses, Episode 7 sometime in August. Thank you very much for listening.